Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I am Dr. David DeRose, and we are again at a venue that has become familiar if you're a regular listener. We've been recording a series of shows from the National Tribal Health Conference here in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We're recording in September of 2018, and since we're recording quite a few shows, it's likely you're hearing this uh, several months after we actually recorded it, but the material is... uh, Exciting stuff to me because I'm rubbing shoulders with all kinds of great people doing great things in Indian country. As you guessed, no different in this segment. Across from me, Gabby Diekman. Gabby, it's good to have you with us. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. Gabby, you work with a program that I've heard about for many years, but I have to be honest with you, I don't know all that much about it. Tell us a little bit about that program and your role in it. I would love to. Some communication specialists for clinical scholars. It's one of four national leadership for better health programs through Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, over 40 years, they've had a history of building a culture of health in the U.S. and its territories. And this program is actually a new version that um, became possible in 2016. Mm. So this iteration of the program seeks um, clinical um, healthcare providers um, across the states mm-hmm. who are working in teams that are interdisciplinary okay. to tackle a complex health issue in their communities. Huh. Yeah, and so through this application process that these teams submit their projects for, we then provide leadership training mm-hmm. and funding for three years to make that impact in their community and get them started on that project. Wow, so this is exciting stuff. Really, you're working kind of on the ground level with people who've identified a need in their own community and then say, look, I'm a clinician, but I want to get more training and leadership and building team and and developing programs. And you provide that infrastructure. Am I hearing you right? Yes. So we know that these providers have received that um, training, um, clinical training for years. However, Mm -hmm. a lot of their programs don't include leadership training. Okay. So this is actually for providers that have been um, in their field for at least five years. Okay. So more of a mid-career professional Uh Uh um, who might be looking to take on some leadership roles um, in the new future or also um, more of advocacy role or um, making changes um, Mm -hmm. policy-wise in their communities, states, and um, at a federal level. And so our leadership training also has uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion focus Mm -hmm. so that when they're dealing with these complex health issues, they're able to have that lens on it as they look um, at their patients and the communities that they're serving. Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, People in Public Health, I mean, I've heard about you guys for years, but a lot of people, they may hear the name, they may say it's a familiar name, they may have heard of National Public Radio, I know you guys sponsor uh, uh, educational things in that venue, but a lot of people say, well, just who was Robert Wood Johnson? Mm-hmm. So for more than 40 years, the foundation 
has been working to build a culture of health in the U.S. So um, as one of the founders of Johnson & Johnson, mm-hmm. um, he has funded this philanthropy to do so and, and make an impact. Um, and these specific four programs of the Leadership for Better Health arose out of seeing that there was a need for collaboration across sectors and disciplines to be able to start to dismantle some of these um, deeply rooted inequities um, across Mm -hmm. the communities. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at some of the printed material that you have at a booth here. So you're one of the exhibitors at the uh, National Tribal Health Conference. And Clinical Scholars is one of the programs that's being promoted. You're especially emphasizing that program. Is that true here? Are you talking about all four? Yeah, so I'm a representative from Clinical Scholars. Mm -hmm. However, we work closely with the three other sister programs, which are Culture of Health Leaders, Health Policy Research Scholars, and Interdisciplinary Research Leaders. So they each have their own program leadership, including other communication specialists um, that can provide more information on those. But all of the information for the four programs is available at Mm rwjf.org. Okay, so rwjf.org. So Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the initials, .org, and we can get all that information that we might want. Yeah, and um, the other three programs are similar to ours where we do accept applications every January. Okay. So whether you already have a project that you're working on, that you're seeking some additional training and funding for, or you wish to start a project, um, these could be potential opportunities um, for you to look into um, and hopefully um, get your application together, get the right team in place to be able to submit the application, and then go for the interview process. Um, We actually have our new cohort starting in October, so you will see a lot of announcements about those projects that are Mm -hmm. coming out here soon. So let's talk to clinicians that might be listening today or Tribal health leaders, patients, individuals who are working with clinicians, they're looking at issues in their communities. They see problems. They see challenges. Maybe they feel either they're a sympathetic clinician or they have the ear of a sympathetic clinician. How would you encourage and why would you encourage someone to apply to be a clinical scholar? What are we talking about? What does the program look like? Yeah. So we know that achieving the best health possible for all requires that we come together in communities to lead change beyond the clinic walls. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I would encourage those that have that passion um, as well as the expertise um, in their fields to apply because they will receive three years of the training, which includes... um, at least two on-site intensive um, sessions that are actually held out at um, UNC Chapel Hill. Okay. And then they will also receive ongoing distance-based training uh-huh. as well as just-in-time modules, which are sorted by topics. So depending on what kind of um, uh, opportunities or issues they're seeing in their workplace, they can access those um, modules as needed hmm. to get some extra training and education around those. And then they also um, receive the that focus, that EDI focus, equity, diversity, and inclusion throughout those um, um, trainings, um, as well as a team coach for their project, mm-hmm. an executive coach for um, not just their project, but also professional and personal um, and then 
also, um, some people think most importantly, um, is the funding that they receive by being part of the program. So each team member receives $35,000 per year. Um, so for each year of the three years and, um, to support their project. So when you say each team member and you're wanting to build teams, so, I mean, there could be a team of 10 people and you're giving 35,000 to each of those 10. That's a great question. Our program specifically works with teams of two to five providers. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. But um, many of the teams um, have members that are integral to their project outside of those two to five. Um, and some of them use some of their budget that they receive that funding to go towards funding other positions mm -hmm. um, or other operations or buying out some of their time from their current employer to okay. work on this project. Uh-huh. Um, so there's lots of opportunities. Um, part of um, when we're screening these applications is we want to make sure they are working with community organizations because we want these projects to be well-informed mm -hmm. around um, what the issue actually is and engaging those in okay. that community. Okay. So basically, someone who is a clinician has to partner not just with a kind of multidisciplinary team of administrators, educators, but you want that individual partnered with at least one other clinician as well. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, you've got it right. So, for example, um, one of our teams um, that's working with three tribes in North Dakota um, includes um, Leolani Aquin, who's a licensed social worker, as mm -hmm. well as doctor of behavioral health, um, Anita Martin, who is a doctor, Kelly McGrady, who is a nurse, and then another doctor, Monica Taylor Desure, is their team lead. Okay. So you've got four clinicians, people that are actively involved in taking care of patients, and then presumably they've got other people on their team who are doing administrative things and things that may not be directly clinical. Is that safe to say? Yeah, that is. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, one of their team members is a nurse within a school system. Okay. So their specific issue that they're tackling in their community is um, high suicide rates, wow. especially among the younger population. Uh -huh. And so she serves as a great touch point in that community, you know, mm -hmm. seeing these um, young adults on a daily basis. Right, right. Um, and being able to provide an integrative care um, that, you know, they're not getting um, once they, you know, come in from a, a suicide attempt, you know, they might see one of the doctors, but then what happens from there? Um, so their approach really is involving um, the community, holding community nights just to build that kind of um you know, engagement and awareness around this issue mm -hmm. um, in a comfortable setting. Um, and then also, like I mentioned, in the school as well. Very good. So you mentioned that your grant applications are due in January. Did I hear that right? Yeah, they open every year in January. Uh -huh. Ours specifically is open January through March. So okay. you do have a few months to get that together. Um, we are holding a webinar on November 27th, uh -huh. 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern time um, for those that are interested in applying to help them prepare their applications. Okay. So there still is a time um, to form those teams mm -hmm. and really think through your project um, and get started on the application before they open in January. Okay. And this show will be airing sometime from today. We're recording in September of 2018. And if we're close to or beyond that November date for the webinar, can people access that? Is it likely to be recorded and on your website? Yes, that's a great question. So it will be available. So they would just access our website, which is clinicalscholars.com. 
N L I dot org. Okay, you you got me here. Clinical scholars, and then what comes after that? N L I. Does that that obviously stands for something? National Leadership Institute. Ah, clinical scholars. N L I dot org. Dot org. Okay, so if you're tuning in today and you're saying, "Wow, we've got problems in our community," you're a clinician, and you're saying you would like some expertise, some people to walk alongside you, give you additional training, and help with the financial end of things, you should be thinking of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and their Clinical Scholars Program. Am I getting the message right? You are. And as I mentioned, there are three other sister programs. Uh-huh. So if you maybe are um, not a healthcare provider, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you're a community member or mm-hmm. a nonprofit or um currently in a doctoral program or wish to be, or you're maybe a researcher. Um, the other three programs do provide um, the same leadership training and oh, funding okay. opportunities. Uh-huh. So um, we definitely work with them and um, come together, all four programs, at least once a year. Um, so you're not just networking with other healthcare providers. You're networking with these researchers, these students, these mm. um, nonprofits and community members. And so we're just hoping that... Um, all best practices are being shared and um, innovations, and everyone just seems to really enjoy that um, fellowship. You know, we call this a fellowship because you're receiving, um, you know, the funding and the training through it, but it's also just a meeting of the minds and a way to connect with other change agents that are interested in um, addressing health equity as well. Wow, this is great. So basically, if anyone's got any questions, the single place to go would be Robert Wood Johnson Foundation or rwjf.org. That's all their opportunities. So uh, much more inclusive than the Clinical Scholars website. That's just specific to our program. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would highly recommend going to that for resources. And then specifically, if you're interested in Clinical Scholars, going to clinicalscholarsnli.org. Great. And I so appreciate before we wind up this section that you had made the point, Gabby, that this is not just about clinicians. If you're interested in health needs in your community, maybe you're a tribal council member, uh, maybe you're an elder and you just have a concern. There are actually funding opportunities for people who want to be community leaders who don't have that formal medical clinical training, right? Yeah, they are seeking the wisdom of community members um, because that's why this programs exist. They know that it takes someone that's in the community to be able to address and tackle these complex issues. Very good. Gabby, thanks so much for joining us. That was Gabby Diekman, communication specialist with the Clinical Scholars Program, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We've got more coming up in today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. I'm Dr. DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. 
For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with Gabby Diekman. Gabby is the communication specialist for the Clinical Scholars Program, part of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Gabby, I know we are speaking a lot about the program. I think you shared a lot of good information, but I know... Nothing brings anything to light like a story or several stories. You've had a number of people who've gone through even the kind of reiteration, as you put it, of of the program. Uh, Tell us an impactful story. Sure. So one of the stories that struck me when I came onto this team was uh, our project based in Atlanta, Georgia, um, which is titled The Burden of Poor Oral Health in Georgia. Wow, The Burden of Poor Oral Health. You know, you've immediately got my attention. I'll just be honest with you, because I've been working in an underserved area in Northern California, and one of the things I was shocked by in working with that population is just the amazing amount of dental disease. I'm a primary care physician, but I look in people's mouths, and it's like, I've never seen such poor oral health. So I can imagine that this is not a unique problem in Northern California. Yeah, and so a lot of communities see these complex health issues, um, including Charles Moore, um, who is an ear, nose, and throat specialist in Atlanta. And his story started when he saw these patients coming in with advanced cancers Mm. that could have been prevented, addressed much earlier on had they had access to oral health. Okay. He kept seeing this and realized someone has to do something about this. And he decided that that person was him. And so he would actually go out into the community in his car Mm -hmm. and do oral health screenings, um, meet the community where they were. Um, 
And throughout this time, he also saw um, how important it was amongst children to provide this oral health early. Um, he would go to health fairs and one instance he had a child come up to him and he presented the child with an apple or a Twinkie. And the child said back to him, I know that the apple is healthier, but it hurts my teeth to eat. Whoa. And so this just fueled his fire for solving this issue. And he got connected with um, David Resnick, a dentist, mm -hmm. and um, Hope Bazinus, a nurse. And they came together for this project that they're now working on through Clinical Scholars. And it includes uh, innovation um, approaches to um, helping. So they have developed an app. Um, oh, I Can is the name of it. And so this helps kind of start that conversation as well as provide some early care um, when it comes to oral health. So let me see if I've got the story right. We've got an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. He's seeing patients. He's dealing with these advanced cancers. This is all long before he ever becomes a part of the Clinical Scholars Program. Am I hearing that right? Correct. And even before he gets involved with your program, he's doing these screenings, or was it as part of your program he started doing that? He did this all on his own, so obviously he's very passionate about this. Um, however, he became part of Clinical Scholars with mm -hmm. his team in 2016 okay, and have been participating in our leadership training on intensive sessions as well as receiving funding to help support their app and their project. As that, it evolves. This is such a great example because, you know, I'm thinking about the scenario, and if someone doesn't have dental services, they can't walk into the dentist's office if they're very limited in their finances, mm -hmm. but will pay for this extensive, you know, head and neck surgery once they have cancer, right? Yeah, I mean, if, if they can. I mean, he was seeing, you know, there's um, low Medicaid reimbursement rates, okay. um, you know, a shortage of dentists helping these people before they got to the point where mm -hmm. they were seeing him. Right, right. Um, so it really is a wicked problem that needs to be addressed much earlier. Um, and obviously, once you come in and you're in that um, far of an advanced cancer, you mm -hmm. know, the, there's not a high high rate that you'll survive that. Mm -hmm. No, some of those head and neck cancers are really nasty, especially when they when they spread from where they started. So I'm trying to get the picture now of this app too. So they're they're doing the screening that I, I can conceptualize that they're going out, they're they're at health fairs, they're going to schools. But what does this app do? Sure. So it's very easy to use. Um, actually, one of the first steps is you're saying if you're a child or an adult. Okay. And so that kind of tailors the questions that it's asking you. Mm -hmm. um, and it just asks you some questions um, about discomfort, um, if you're feeling some within your teeth, um, you know, how often, how intense, mm -hmm. um, you know, graphic laid out, you know. Okay. So for children, you know, you can see a face that's smiling or okay. you can see a face that looks in pain. Mm -hmm. And then it helps them, you know, kind of gauge where they're at and if they need to take an action at this moment in time mm -hmm. um, that will hopefully help them get treatment before any kind of um, uh, problems really advance from there. So is it safe to conclude that the funding of the app development maybe came through funds that you provided through the Clinical Scholars Program? Am I connecting those dots right? Or 
It's been supported, yes, throughout this program. So this team is entering their third and final year of the Uh program. So at the end of this, they'll also develop a toolkit, which will include some information about the app, Mm -hmm. um, but also their project, which we will make available on our website so that other communities that are seeing similar issues can use it as a starting step for them to Mm -hmm. do something similar for, for their communities that they serve. So it sounds like one great place to go. If someone's listening to this show and they're saying, wow, this is engaging. I mean, this uh, this sounds interesting. Maybe it's something that I could do, but I don't know where to start. I don't know what kind of project to do. There's so many needs. If they go to that Robert Wood Johnson website, they can read stories like this and get some ideas? Yeah. RWJF.org has a blog. And so you can actually see Charles Moore's story on there um, about oral health um, and how critical it is, as well as others. Um, And these are not just coming from the Clinical Scholars Program, but um, all of the opportunities that are funded through the foundation. Wow. So stories grab us like nothing else does. You've got at at your booth here, at um, the National Tribal Health Conference, you've got an interesting picture here. Now, I don't know if these are uh, real participants in your they program. Are. They are. Okay. Yeah. So I'm looking here, and of, of course, you know, radio uh, cannot do justice <laughs> to a, a colorful uh, brochure or flyer, but I'm looking here at a number of pictures of clinicians, and I notice a real diversity in race, ethnicity, training. I mean, you've got physician's assistants and what a director of oriental, oh, doctor of oriental medicine, social worker, audiologist, pharmacist, nurse practitioner, pediatrician, psychologist, dentist, physician, occupational therapist, and then you got a blank. And what what is this? Uh, what's this all about? Yeah, so the blank space is for providers to see themselves as part of our program. Mm. So as you listed, it's cross disciplines. Uh We want them to come together to tackle these issues. Um, A lot of our providers are also considering taking on leadership roles in their um, career. Mm -hmm. And so this um, program, Clinical Scholars, provides not only that funding to go towards these projects that are, you know, they would probably be doing without the funding because they're passionate about Mm it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also provides the leadership training with an equity, diversity, and inclusion focus that can really help them in their careers as well as um, we've even had um, clinical scholars shift careers and go more into public health and advocating um, for these issues at a larger level. So, um, you know, it can be... uh, great big step in your career or as well as your passion, you know, maybe taking it a different way. Uh huh. So a lot of grants, a lot of programs that are involved with training, they're looking for people right out of their education, you know, the so-called postdoc training opportunities. This is different. You want people of at least five years of clinical experience under their belt, right? Yeah, that's a great point because there was a previous version of clinical scholars that was for um, medical students. Okay. Um, so, yes, this version um, began in 2016 mm-hmm. and is different in that way that we want people to have been post-licensure mm-hmm. for at least five years. Okay. Because they've been able to go out, um, see the clinical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I'll add to, um, it's also for preceptors or someone that's training other clinicians I too. Uh-huh. So you don't technically have to be seeing patients uh-huh. as long as you're, you know, working within some kind of capacity in underneath your license. Uh-huh. 
Um, and we know that they've had that experience to be able to take a step back and see what might be creating some of these issues they're seeing in the clinic, in the community, and what they can do to address those. Okay. Now, you've answered the question about kind of the front end as far as the training. You want people who've been in the field for a while. How long is too long? You know, if someone's listening in and they say, boy, this is something we've been doing in our tribe for many years, but, uh, you know, I'm 65. I don't know that anyone's going to want to invest in me going through the program. Uh, and that's not me, if, if you're wondering how old I am. <laughs> but um, just giving you a scenario. So uh, what would that look like? Is it mid-career that you're looking for? That's what we usually say. However, we do have one that one scholar that I can think of that comes to mind that was actually about to retire okay. and then became part of the program and her team. And she's actually looking <laughs> going back to school really? to do more of the policy change that I mentioned some people shift to. That's amazing. One more time. Give us the website so people can connect with you and your program. rwjf.org. And that will give all the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation opportunities um, and clinical scholars in li.org for clinical scholar specific information. Thank you so much, Gabby. We got to run. We've got more coming up in today's edition of American Indian Living, but we've got a couple of important messages before we come back. Stay tuned. A lot more from the National Tribal Health Conference right up after this. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We've got another great guest to wind up the second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. Her name is Sheila Williams. Sheila, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, Sheila, I know you're doing something great here at the National Tribal Health Conference because more than once, and it's true, I'm not making this up, more than once someone has said, you've got to get Sheila Williams on the show. And I've seen your card several times. It keeps coming across my desk. Have you had Sheila on the show yet? No. No, not yet. No. And finally, actually, I wandered over to your booth, and there you were. (laughs) Yes, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And I'm so glad that you actually were able to slip away for a little bit and join us. Sure, I'm glad to be here. What I think is getting people so excited is you are based right here in Oklahoma. Yes. But you're making a difference throughout Indian country when it comes to suicide prevention in youth. Tell us a little bit about the project that you're working with. Sure. So the Kickapoo Tribe was awarded the Native Connections Grant through SAMHSA. It's a five-year grant. Uh, We're getting ready to go into year three come October 1st. Um, And so through that grant, um, basically data showed in our community that um, we need to focus in areas of suicide and substance abuse prevention for Native youth 12 to 24 years old in our communities. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the foundation of of the grant is to reduce suicide and substance use, in addition to that, to also promote mental health among our youth and our young adults as well. Tremendous. So when we're talking about the Kickapoo tribe here in Oklahoma, how many people are we talking about in that 12 to 24 year age range? Um, in McLeod, which is where the Kickapoo tribe is actually physically based, um, looking about maybe 2,000. Okay. Um, and then we cover several several other communities. So those communities include Hera, uh, uh-huh. Choctaw, Jones, Shawnee, Wellston, and Meeker. Okay. So our grant actually covers that, and that's called uh, the Kickapoo Service Area. So this would kind of be east of Oklahoma City, if I yes. get the lay of the land? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Basically, you're working with a fairly large geographic area. Yes. And are your services limited to tribal members, or is it all Native youth, or how does that work? That's a good question we get asked a lot. Um, The emphasis and the preference um, is is specifically Native, but once we reach kind of a certain capacity, we can service non-Natives as well, about 20%. So now... The exception to that is when we have community engagements, whether that be an end-of-school bash that we have every year now out at the Kickapoo Tribal Health Center. A lot of our events are open to the community, so it doesn't matter if you're Kickapoo or you're Native or not. We welcome everyone in our community to those nice, events. Nice, nice. Yeah. And how how much do you find those who are not Native relate to the kind of programming you're doing? A lot do, actually. When we work with our local schools, um, which, you know, they're working with children every day, so mm-hmm. we really try to collaborate and build that relationship with our schools, um, we get non-natives in there. And so when I was doing life skills with the McLeod Alternative School last year, there were non-natives in there, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're not going to exclude anybody. Right, so we're right. giving the same type of skills and training to all students regardless of who they are. So. I think this is exciting because, of course, there is the need in Indian country, but this need is everywhere. It's I mean, everywhere. We, we all know it. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, you're making a difference with a special focus on Native youth, 12 to 24. Yes. But that's really spilling over into the whole community. Absolutely. Now, I know it's early into the project. I mm-hmm. mean, it's five a five-year project. Right. I mean, you're kind of, what, halfway through? Is that yes. fair to say? Yes, uh-huh. But even at that, I mean, no one expects all these problems to be solved in five years sure. even. yeah. 
what kind of things have been happening that have been encouraging to you? And I, I ask you because although I haven't introduced you this way, mm-hmm. you are the Native Connections Project Coordinator, right? Yes. Uh-huh. So you kind of have an oversight capacity right. as far as this whole project. Yes. Uh-huh. And that's more of my responsibility because we know that one person can't really make that much of a difference. You're starting kind of a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. So the more people we engage, whether it's mental health agencies, other tribal organizations, our local schools, our police officers, because we all interact with youth and young adults all the time. Mm-hmm. But for suicide prevention and to talk about it, um, it's a difficult subject. Mm-hmm. But the more that uh, the more relationships we build, the more they can go out and educate and do prevention work with us. So where I've been more trying to build a team um, with more key people in the community. We also have a youth coalition board. Um, and so our youth actually get to be a voice in our community. So every month we all meet and they actually get to make decisions for our community, whether it's what activities we're holding, what type of suicide prevention, um, events we want to do. So a lot of the things that people see native connections do in our community is really driven by our youth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's one of the big things is letting them be a voice. I think one of the unique things about suicide prevention, when we look at the public health arena, is mm-hmm. the dialogue is often an interesting one. When it comes to someone dying of a heart attack or cancer, we say we've got to talk more about this, we've got to do more screening. Sure. But sometimes when it comes to suicide, there's mm-hmm. almost a fear to talk about it because we have this sense, well, you know, others may want to copy this. We don't right. want to give it too much visibility. Mm-hmm. And so there's this tension. How have you dealt with that in the kind of programming that you're doing? Very delicately, mm-hmm. um, especially within tribal communities. We want to be respectful uh, to the cultural traditions and beliefs. And depending on because each tribe is different, mm-hmm. of course. And so for what the Kickapoo tribe believes for their own community, we have to make sure that our prevention work falls in line with that, Mm -hmm. that we're not overstepping any boundaries, that we're remaining sensitive to the culture. So a lot of times it's more just kind of reframing uh, the word suicide and saying safety and wellness. Mm -hmm. Well, what does safety and wellness look like? So when we use that kind of frame, that framing and people come to our events, that's when we can talk about suicide prevention. So that's how we've started. But lately our community has become more aware of what we're doing as far as prevention Mm -hmm. and we're kind of getting on that edge of saying suicide okay, and getting more volunteers and getting more buy-in from our community Mm -hmm. that way. Now, when I wandered over to your booth, I found something that that really resonated with me. You're giving out these uh, these little cards, and they Mm -hmm. look like these incentive cards at different stores and all the laminated. Mm -hmm. You've got two parts to it. You've got one part that's like the size of a credit card, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a plastic stock here and then you've got the little keychain type Mm -hmm. thing that you break off and it says uh, on the top of it my promise to myself tell us a little bit about what this is uh, involving sure so because we are targeting youth and young adults uh, we know they're always on the go um, don't always have books and notepads because everything is, is digital or uh, just something they want to carry on their person. So when I came across these, um, I thought, wow, what would that, how perfect would that be to just put in your wallet? And it's called a wallet size uh, key card and you can tear the bottom off like you were saying and put on your keychain. Mm-hmm. Um, because we'd been to other trainings and they said anything small that youth can keep on them is something that they'll eventually look at, especially mm-hmm. their keys because they're mm-hmm. always with them. Mm-hmm. Whether they're getting in their house or they're getting in their okay. car, they have keys. Uh-huh. So that's where that came from. And it's just a reminder that they commit to life, that they commit to choose themselves because they matter no matter what they're going through. Mm -hmm. And so as I look at this, it's a number of of affirmations. Mm -hmm. So the first one says, I will 
refrain from acting on my suicidal thoughts and will give myself time to feel better. When you're giving these out, is this something you'd center a program around or would you just, just hand these out? When I'm working with youth, um, we try to be more intentional to, to let it be a conversation. Okay. To say whether you're going through your darkest time or a friend is, this is just a reminder for you that you won't take your own life, that you can help a peer get out of their worst situation by just giving them some type of hope and encouragement. So we like to say, wh whether it's for you or someone else, we just ask that you take one so that you commit to life. Mm -hmm. So we do try to be intentional uh, with our kids, especially when we're giving those out. Adults will read it and they know exactly usually who they're going to give it to. Mm -hmm. They usually have someone in mind of who they want to give that to. Maybe walk us through a few of these. So okay. the first one has to do with refraining from acting on those suicidal thoughts. What sure. are some of the other things that you enumerate there? So the next one says, I will avoid drugs and alcohol because they can intensify suicidal thoughts. And the next one says, I will remove all pills, knives, razors, and firearms from my home or go to a place where I feel safe. So because... The majority of suicides include access to lethal means, which is often mm -hmm. firearms, especially with males. Mm -hmm. um, we're basically saying, well, you may have access to something, but how can we remove access to lethal means so that you don't have something in arm's way um, that could encourage you to take your own life? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, substance abuse when you're in an altered state, you're more susceptible to taking your own life. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just, again, those real kind of a reminder of what that reality looks like for kids because these are things that they go through every day and instead of an adult kind of talking at them it's a reminder to themselves of how to be encouraged and that they promise to not take their life or to not to participate in dangerous behavior mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so so i can see a student may have picked up one of these mm -hmm. maybe stuffed it in their wallet uh, maybe it's in you know with their uh, sure. you know their smartphone in the case mm -hmm. or something or in a purse and uh You've got some other affirmations on here, too. I will overcome this tough time because I know periods of depression and suicidal thoughts don't last forever. Right. Why, to someone, and we haven't mentioned, you know, your background. You're a, a trained counselor, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Why is that such a powerful affirmation? If a youth is able to get to a point where they realize that what they're currently going through is only temporary, mm. it will dramatically decrease uh, the chances of them dying by suicide. Mm -hmm. And just for example, I'll give you a, a realistic one. Uh, we had a youth last week help us uh, film a PSA. And one of the things he's mentioned, he's 14 years old and he's mm -hmm. been through a lot for his age. And he said that they asked him, well, what would you say to other peers going through things that you've been through? And he said, just to let them know that what they're going through isn't permanent, mm -hmm. that they'll mm -hmm. get through it mm -hmm. and that it doesn't last forever. And that was a 14 year old saying that. So that's, again, just a reminder to them that, yeah, it may be bad right now, but it doesn't have to mean it's always going to be that way. Mm -hmm. So you've worked with a lot of youth personally. Yes, sir. Who are dealing with depression, mm -hmm. anxieties, victims of bullying, victims of, you know, rape, yes. uh, other things. A lot of things happen in life that really, well, can often send people into a, a spiral right. downward. Mm-hmm. What kind of things do you find as a counselor that help people come out of that uh, very depressed outlook that sometimes falls even on kids who you know seem to have the whole world and their whole sure. lives ahead of them? Yeah. One of the most important things is getting into counseling and seeing a therapist mm -hmm. um, to kind of work through some of those challenges. But I would say the most important thing is connection. Youth who are not connected to other youth or are not part of their community or volunteering or just doing something else and they don't have that connection are more at risk 
to die by suicide or to engage in drugs or some type of harm, harmful uh, behaviors. But connection is what we've seen across the board that is a big part of youth resi- resiliency. So, I, I appreciate this so much. I mean, there's so much now in the public health arena talking about the power of social connectedness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, today a lot of people want to think, well, we're more socially connected than ever. We've got all these devices and uh, ways to, you know, share exactly where we're at, what we're thinking. But mm-hmm. it seems on some level people are even more disconnected than ever. Do you see that from a oh, counselor's viewpoint? Absolutely. I mean, it's you can go anywhere these days and see a youth on their phone. And honestly, us adults are probably as bad if, <laughs> or worse sometimes. Okay. Um, but, yeah, it, it's hard for them to put it down. And if they get, become disconnected, they're going through their own withdrawals because it can, anything can become an addiction mm-hmm. um, over a period of time. But, yeah, it's harder to get youth involved when they have everything at their fingertips. Mm -hmm. But what we found is the youth who are involved in their community, the youth that are involved in the Indian Club at the school or Unity or with our uh, youth coalition, um, they're part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those things, those difficulties and their challenges that they're going through are still there, but they feel more conquerable when they're connected to other peers. Mm -hmm. Now, we want to spend another segment with you. You can stay by. Uh But before we do, if some can't stay by, give us uh, maybe some contact information if people want to benefit from your resources. Okay. Um, You can reach me at the Kickapoo Tribe Behavioral Health at 405-964-2618, extension 328. Okay. Let me see if I've got that right. So it's area code 405-964-2618. Yes. And then just remember Sheila Williams if they can't remember the extension 328, right? That's correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're going to be back with more from Sheila Williams. I'm Dr. David DeRose here at the National Tribal Health Conference. More coming up. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Today's broadcast has been prerecorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. 
I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose, and across from me, Sheila Williams, the Native Connections Project Coordinator. We've been talking about what's happening right here in the heart of Indian country in Oklahoma to make a difference with suicide and substance abuse Mm -hmm. among Native youth. You're especially working with the Kickapoo tribe, but with Native youth uh, from your area, from across tribal lines, right? That's correct. And as we mentioned, into the non-Native population also. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I remember hearing about, and I'll just tell you this story, Sheila. Some years ago, I was speaking in New England, and I ran into a woman, and she said, um, you know, I'm part of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And I said, what? That still exists? I'd heard about this in history. And these were people that would have individuals sign pledges mm. that they weren't going to drink. And there was no opioid crisis back then, you know, in the 1800s or whatever. Maybe there was, but, mm-hmm. you know, not one that, that we talk a lot about today. And so they were having people sign these pledges. They're going to be temperate. They're not going to use substances that alter their, their mind. And that idea of pledges and signing and commitments, Mm -hmm. it just came to mind when I saw these cards at your Mm -hmm. booth. We've been talking about it. It's not something that kids are actually signing, but in a way, if they take the card, it's saying they're promising to themselves, and there's these five affirmations, I will, I will, I will. We've been talking about them. We didn't mention the last one, which really kind of recaps something you already shared. It says, I will share my feelings with a friend therapist, teacher, or someone else I trust Mm -hmm. so they can help me cope with the pain I'm feeling. Sure. Now, you're a professional counselor, Mm -hmm. and I would think your preference would be to say, I'll talk with a trained mental health professional. You would think for most cases, yes. But at the same time, just talking with anyone can be really helpful, can't it? Absolutely. Any youth who have a trusted outlet, um, it does in- increase uh, resiliency, but mo- more than that, it just gives them someone to talk to um, that they may not have anywhere else. And that's one of the difficult things that we're finding in a lot of the youth we work for- work with is that um, a lot of them don't have a trusted adult. Mm. So it might be your camp counselor. It might be your behavioral health clinician. Um, it might be your neighbor or a coach. Mm. And so it's often just kind of lay people that you would, that don't have a background in counseling. And so that's why we encourage youth to talk to someone that they feel is safe and trusted mm-hmm. to talk about those difficult things that they're going through and that they're not alone. So if we want to talk prevention, mm-hmm. you know, so often I'm a physician. I do, of course, see mental health problems in a primary care practice, but I see a lot of physical health mm-hmm. issues too, of course. It seems that people, at least in the physical realm, they only mm-hmm. sense their need for medical services when they're sick. Right. And a lot of times people will ask me outside of the clinic setting. Mm-hmm. I'll say, well, I don't have a physician, et cetera, et cetera. I'll say, well, while you're healthy, mm-hmm. why don't you find someone in the community you're comfortable with? Because sure. you don't want to just have, be assigned anyone in the emergency right. room, right? Right. What about in the mental health arena? Because mm-hmm. this is kind of the same dynamic. People mm-hmm. don't go to see a counselor typically mm-hmm. if they don't have any counseling issues. 
Right. Yeah, that, that's a good uh, conversation to have because there's so much um, stigma around mental health and uh, there's a lot of negative labels. I would like to say that it's starting to evolve into more of a conversation about mental health. So different words may be used like mental wellness mm-hmm. is something that we're really trying to promote in our community um, because a lot of people think if you go to a counselor that you're crazy or there's you have a lot of trauma and that may be true for some, not the crazy part, but a lot of, a lot of trauma uh-huh. Uh-huh. and, but it could be um, stress. It could be a relationship. It could be a divorce. It could right. be anything um, that is just a difficult situation in your life. So we're really trying to um, decrease some of that stigma around just going to a mental health clinician. And the other thing, as far as physicians, we work well um, and very closely with our health clinic. And mm-hmm. so one of our providers, Stephanie Bond, who's also on a suicide prevention grant called MSPI for our department, she goes over to our clinic about four days a week and screens okay. new patients uh, mm-hmm. over there. And she finds that a, a lot of uh, patients who have higher levels of cholesterol or blood pressure often have some type of trauma. So mm-hmm. she goes over there and introduces herself. And then sometimes, a lot of times, they'll be referred to our clinic for counseling. Excellent. So she's doing a great job at trying to integrate behavioral health into our clinic side. This is great. This is something I've had an interest in, especially recently. You and I were talking off air. Mm-hmm. We have a small grant to try to help tribes, especially with comorbidities that impact diabetes. Sure. And there's been a lot of talk in Indian country. In fact, the National Congress of American Indians, their uh, research group, put out a, a monograph recently talking about this, we sometimes call it bidirectionality mm-hmm. between mental health disorders and conditions like diabetes. So mm-hmm. people with diabetes have more mental health issues. Right. Mental health issues tend to predispose to lifestyle factors that mm-hmm. impact diabetes and high blood pressure. So I think there's a dialogue that's really great. And you have it playing out. In your community, you, yes. you've actually deliberately structured encounters, mm-hmm. events, so that youth are mingling with providers. Am I hearing that right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. The, the grant that I was just referring to, the MSPI grant, they, they do a youth summer camp every summer uh, for ages 13 to 15-year-olds. And so myself, um, I get to be a part of that, nice. um, whether it's helping doing healthy relationship discussions or coping skills. But we're with the children for about six or seven weeks, okay. twice a week. And so you're building relationship with these kids where at the end they re- refer to you as a mentor, uh-huh. someone they can privately talk to about some difficult things. And that's probably one of the most enriching experiences is you start as a camp counselor, but you end as a mentor. Uh-huh. And you don't realize that transition is happening, but you're really making an impact. And more importantly, they're making impact on us. Uh-huh. They're showing us. They're teaching us. And as long as I think as adults stay open to receive those messages for, from kids, I think we'll interact a lot better with them. This is a powerful uh, message. And I know a lot of us, what really draws us in are those practical stories. You've given us some practical illustrations already, but how about if you bring us into that camp okay. setting? What kind of things have you seen that have, you said, they're teaching you. What, what kind of things uh, have you learned that you can share with us? I'll try not to get too emotional when I talk okay. about youth. <laughs> um, but for this year, it just seemed like the kids were almost like handpicked. They went mm-hmm. so well together. Mm-hmm. Um, so many different personalities and backgrounds. We had a young man who is autistic, and he had no problems telling people that he was. And so we weren't sure how the other youth were going to kind of receive him or interact with him. They were so patient and mm-hmm. kind and compassionate mm-hmm. to him. And he was so terrified. We went to uh, the ropes course out in Norman, and and he was like, I don't think I can do this. And then all of a sudden we get there and he's got a safety harness on. He's the first one that volunteers to go. And I'm saying this, these 
stroke courses are high. Okay. And half our kids are terrified of, of heights. <laughs> and we're like, what's going to happen? Are we like, you know, harming these kids? No. Uh-huh. But they each went and they're clapping for each other and mm-hmm. they're encouraging this kid okay. who didn't have the confidence in himself. And so, and they're doing that on their own. Uh-huh. And so that's just kind of a picture of every day at camp was the kids encouraging each other. Another girl who was very quiet and shy um, got up in the middle of one of our uh, art sessions and starts playing the piano. Hmm. And that was just so outside of her nature from where she first started in camp. Mm-hmm. But by the end of it, friendships were, were, were made. Numbers were exchanged between the kids. Um, some of them were coming to us counselors uh, to talk about personal things. And so we just see everybody grow, including the, the, the adults. But the kids just really bonded. And that's the most heartwarming thing because we knew that they're each going through their own situations outside of camp. Mm-hmm. But they were their own family. And that's what they became to each other. They were just like relatives to each other and just so kind and caring to each other. Well, that's tremendous. And it's such a great story. And such a great story about social connectedness, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yes. Folks are listening. They're saying, wow, this sounds like great stuff that they're doing there in central Oklahoma. Are these programs open just to Kickapoo youth Mm -hmm. or how does that work? Specifically for the uh, Kickapoo Summer Camp under the MSPI grant, um, they give open what's called a preference for mm-hmm. uh, Kickapoo tribal member youth. And then once that re- reaches to a certain capacity or not everyone's filled up, then they'll open it up next to behavioral health clients. Oh, okay. And then it'll be open up to anyone of any tribe. But they do have to have a CDIB card okay. uh, for specifically for this camp because of, it's funded by um, IHS. Okay. Yes, and Good Health and Wellness. So... Good health and wellness in Indian country, bringing it right here to the backyard of the <laughs> National Tribal Health Conference, and you're sharing your story. Something that I think has been underestimated, and we're, we don't have much time to talk about it, but when we deal with youth is using the new media, using the texting, using the uh, social media. You folks um, have been working with a crisis text line. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that's all about. Okay. So the crisis text line was initially uh, developed because um, the lady who founded the crisis text line organization was realizing that youth specifically, you know, they're on their phones more Mm -hmm. than they're picking up a phone to call. They want to text. So unfortunately, a young girl had texted um, some really traumatic events that had happened to her personally. And they were like, well, how do we respond to this? Mm -hmm. And so what they did is they developed a crisis text line. They have trained crisis counselors um, who are able to respond via text to youth or anybody of all ages Uh who are going through a crisis. And crisis could mean suicidality. It could mean stress. It could mean depression, Mm -hmm. anything. Um, And so the what you do is you text the word hello. Hello? Yes, uh-huh. to 741741. Let me get this down. Okay. 741741. And uh-huh. just text the word hello. Yes. And then within a few minutes, you'll get a trained crisis counselor, and that youth immediately will be communicating with the trained crisis counselor. Wow. And if for some reason, if that youth is at risk for suicide and have a plan, then they'll be referred to their nearest emergency room or mental health agency. Wow, great stuff. I wish we could have talked about it more, sure. but our time has just about slipped away. Well, Sheila... There are folks that do want to contact you. One more time, how can they get a hold of you? You can reach me at the Kickapoo Tribe at 405-964-2618. Okay, and is there an email or web presence too? Yes, my email is is Sheila, and that's spelled S-H-I-E-L-A dot Williams at O-K-K-T-H-C dot com. Okay, so O-K-K-T-H-C, Kickapoo Tribal Health Center. Yes. Dot com. Mm -hmm. Sheila dot Williams. Boy, we got to run. Sheila, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully today's show, like always, has helped you to be in the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.